At Hodder Education, we know that every geography classroom need is different, which is why we have developed a wide range of print and digital Key Stage 3, GCSE and A-level geography resources, written by the experts that you know and trust. Whether it's the award-winning Progress in Geography, Key Stage 3 online bank of resources, or our brand new set of My Revision Notes, written specifically for the exam board you deliver, we have the right set of resources to support your students. Visit www.hoddereducation.co.uk forward slash geography today to explore more. Thanks for joining me today for another Jump Pod. My guest today is Dr. Natasha Dowie, who's a senior lecturer in physical geography at Sheffield Hallam University. And Natasha, you specialise in volcanology, but you have a number of roles. Um, you're the editor of Geoscience of the Future, and uh, you describe yourself, and I want to unpick this later, as being passionate about promoting the importance of geoscience in a more sustainable society. Welcome to Jump Pod, Natasha. Hiya, John. How are you? Nice to be here. Good. I'm pleased that you've joined. I, I generally do a little bit of research and uh, I was interested to look and see what your choices had been from A-level onwards. When I was at university, I know it was 100 years ago, um, I sort of followed the subject. So I went from my A-levels to geography at Sheffield University. But you didn't. You chose... A, BA, a BSc, actually, in environmental earth science. So what A-levels did you do? And what were your choices that took you there? Yeah, so I, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I loved geography, and I loved physical geography particularly. So I did geography at A-level. But I also loved literature. I did English literature. I loved languages. I did Spanish. And then almost as a kind of last gasp panic that I needed something a bit sciencey, I did maths. So I did English, maths, geography and Spanish. This was back in the days where you could have a, an AS level. And in the end, I ended up taking forward geography, English and maths is my three A levels. And really, the reason I went with environmental earth science was because I realized I, at the time I realized that physical geography was what I loved most. And uh, my physical geography teacher said, well, if you don't want to do any human geography, then you need to do earth science. You need to do a subject that just focuses on the earth. At that point, I'd never even heard of geology. So to put that into, <laughs> I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for with an environmental earth science degree. I just thought, oh, it's going to be loads of volcanoes. And uh, yeah, and then it opened up a whole new world, really, of, because um, back then the environmental earth science degree that I did was a bit of water chemistry it was a bit of laboratory techniques but it was also geology rocks and minerals and volcanoes and and for me that was really defining because it's stuff that was so beyond what I had done at A level so it really connected me with the natural environment in a way that I hadn't been before and it's kind of ironic now because I'm sure as we'll come to I've kind of come a bit full circle again um, with my career and have ended up working more in more social contexts again and am now much more engaged with human geographical aspects of my work but yeah back then many years ago I was so focused on the physical that yeah earth science was the way forward for me at the time. That's really interesting I, I, I just I wouldn't have thought of it at all and students quite often say what can you do with geography 
and don't make that link. But your link is, is really intriguing because you didn't. I was expecting you to have said you did all sciences with your with your geography. Yeah. Like you'd have and done physics and chemistry and geography. Yeah. And I mean, I ended up doing a master's in geochemistry, but I hadn't even done a chemistry A-level. So it was a really interesting path that I took. I kind of fell in love with chemistry during my undergraduate degree, the kind of chemical elements of what I was studying of geology and of laboratory skills and of water chemistry, for example, and ended up doing a master's looking at the chemistry of volcanic rocks. Oh, on volcano. A island. Yes. Yeah. So, How did that work? What was that then? So I, I've noticed that it said volcanic geochemistry. What does that mean? Yeah. So basically... For my final dissertation, so in a three-year degree, I had an opportunity to do a dissertation project, which is basically a long project where you do your own piece of research. And I chose to do mine where I mapped an area for its rocks. Basically, that means that you go through an area, you look at the rock types that are there, and you draw a map of where they all occur. And you try to unpick that story to tell you about how that landscape has evolved through time. And me and a friend both loved volcanoes. And so we raised some money and we went to Santorini in Greece for six weeks. And we both took a different part of the island and looked at all the volcanic rocks and tried to understand what that told us about how that volcano had evolved through time. Um, and then because I had done that for my third year project, one of my supervisors was really keen to do some geochemistry on those rocks. So they had a project at that same university at Aberystwyth where I was. And they said, you know, would you like to shoot some lasers at these rocks? Um, and I said, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, so, so yeah, I applied to do a master's project and that was a one year long research project. It was called, a, it's called an MPhil, a master's of philosophy. And it's basically like a baby PhD. A PhD is a doctor of philosophy, and this was the master's version. And yeah, I spent a lot of time in the lab crushing rocks and putting them inside a laser, shooting them with a laser to try and understand what different types of chemical elements they had in there. And that was able to tell me something about how the magma chamber beneath the volcano had evolved through time. So yeah, very different again from kind of doing English and maths at A-level, um, a very kind of uh, odd journey to get there but I just really loved I knew that I love volcanoes all the way through and was really interested to find out more about them so just kept on kept on following that really. And Santorini's beautiful as well from what I remember the rocks are, are really black and crunchy whereas on I, I, I went up Mount Tady as well and that completely different colours. Yeah so Santorini is like a layer cake it's amazing stratigraphy so stratigraphy amazing layers of rocks to look at because it transitions from very dark um, black basalt lavas and then you get bright red andesite spatter deposits and then you have these bright white beautiful rhyolitic uh, Plinian deposits so Plinian volcanism the same kind of volcanism that gave us Pompeii at 79 AD was the kind of volcanism that created a lot of the volcanic rocks on Santorini. Um, so you get these stripy cliffs of blacks and reds and whites at Santorini. But yeah, Teide has got a very, um, it's obviously a much bigger island, Tenerife, and lots of very different types of volcanism going on in different places around the island. But both of them are caldera volcanoes, um, which means they both have these big craters in their middle. And um, they're both formed by explosive volcanism, which is why I ended up working on Tenerife for my PhD, because 
I had that experience from Santorini. I was really interested in the kinds of volcanoes that create pyroclastic density currents, also known as pyroclastic flows, these big clouds of hot ash, gas and rock that cascade down volcanoes during explosive eruptions. So I was really interested in the dynamics, and I still am interested in the dynamics of how those hazards work and how they create deposits that we then use to try and unpick volcanic history. So that's a really academic route. So now you're at, you're at Liverpool, aren't you? So that. yeah, so when I like, when I did my uh, masters, I was at Aberystwyth, and then I went travelling for a year because I still didn't know what I really wanted to do. Um, I was always a, a big one for never really knowing what I wanted to do. So I travelled around the world for a year, worked in Australia on a working holiday visa, had no money when I got there, worked in pubs and hotels, and um, travelled around New Zealand, and yeah, had a really good year away. Came back, still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Worked in Cornwall for a year, where I live, where I come from. Worked for a media company, and then eventually decided, yeah, actually, I really miss science. I miss volcanoes, so I started applying to PhD projects, and yeah, got the Tenerife one at Liverpool, and that's where I then spent the next four years. Santorini and Tenerife, wow! <laughs> but then, given the way that that all went, I would have normally I'd have expected you to have gone then into a, a career in academia, but no, you didn't. No, and it wasn't really for want of trying, to be honest. Um, I applied to a few things and wasn't successful. And it was really my first insight into the brutality of academia. Academia is a really tough career, a really tough industry to crack, a tough sector. And there's a lot of people who get to the end of a PhD or get to the end of a postdoc, which is the next stage that typically happens after a PhD, and find it really, really difficult to keep on climbing the ladder it's you know a lot of people are lost at each stage and now when I talk to students who are studying PhDs I actively tell them don't assume that you're going to get a career in academia actually a lot more people with PhDs work outside academia than work inside academia a PhD isn't training you for a career in academia it's training you to be a researcher whether that be a research scientist or whether that be a researcher in social science or human geography it's giving you skills and I kind of wish that someone had said that to me when I started my PhD, because I got to the end of my PhD and I thought, you know, I want to be a lecturer. Where are these jobs? Where, where you know, what am I do, What am I going to do? And I wish someone had just said to me at the start, actually, you know, you, you're a researcher now. There's lots of different jobs that you can do. And after a few tries, I ended up looking for jobs in industry. And at the time, the industry that was offering jobs was the oil and gas industry. And it's an industry that I never thought I would have worked in as a young person. I found a small consultancy with kind of 80 geoscientists and they were a really dynamic team. They didn't just work for oil and gas, they worked for mining and they were trying to kind of crack the financial sector as well. And it was a really great crowd of geoscientists. And I ended up working with them for, I worked, well, they were Neftex to begin with. Um, and I worked with them for a couple of years as, as Neftex. And then we got bought out by Halliburton, which is, uh, if, you're not, if you're not aware, for people not listening, it's a very large um, oil and gas uh, services provider in the oil industry. Um, so I had an experience of going from working from a relatively small but growing company of kind of 80 geoscientists who all knew each other to suddenly being part of an international mega company with 80,000 employees. Um, and it was a very interesting company to be part of. We went through the oil price crash in 2014, which was a very challenging time. It taught me a lot about big industry 
and working for multinational companies. It taught me a lot about managing people. Um, I became an industry trainer, so I learned a lot about teaching um, in the field and in the office. But it also taught me a lot about learning who I wanted to work for and what I wanted to do with my life. And we all, during the oil price crash, there wasn't a lot of movement. Normally, people turn over in the oil industry quite quickly. People move in and out, go to different jobs. But because the crash hit, everything became very, um, very conservative and nobody really moved for quite a while. And I started to look around and think, you know, this is, is this really what I want? And then the IPCC report in 2015 came out, which was a real, uh, so that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that really, for the first time, it was really shocking. I mean, we had known about climate change for a long time, obviously, but I think for me, I was still very naive at that point. And that report really made it crystal clear to me that there were, there were other roles that I could be taking in geoscience, other, other pathways that I could find that would be more beneficial and that would make me feel happier with where my career sat in the big picture. So for me, that was a big turning point in making me look for jobs outside of industry. When you looked outside, and perhaps even in, in academia as well, I was just, I was wondering, because I was, I was reading about this. This was a quote I got from Stanford University. It, it said, what does it mean to be a woman in the geosciences? Because the second one, which I got from another website, JOLSOC, was that, that the headline was outnumbered and surrounded women working in male dominated research fields. Well, you still are, I imagine, working in yeah. a, a very male dominated environment. Yeah, and I think particularly in industry, it was always a big topic of conversation. In NetEx, when I first started, they were actually quite unusual in that they took in a really um, good mix of women and men. It was a really balanced environment at the lower levels. But then, with as with many industries, when you look around, the higher up you got, it was harder to see female role models. And I know from other colleagues who are currently working in, mine, in mining, that this is still a big problem across the sector and, and seeing those role models is so important and um, organizations like women in mining are so important in really highlighting and showcasing diverse female voices in mining leadership from around the world i mean in academia when i was coming up through there were so few women lecturers that was really notable you know i was taught by a whole uh, kind of lecturing cohort of male lecturers in Liverpool, there was maybe one or two female lecturers out of the whole department. I've noticed that change now. I've worked on far more gender diverse uh, teaching teams in the last five years, in the last four years. But what I would say is that the change, the gradual change and the gradual improvement in gender diversity, if anything, has just more starkly underlined how lacking in diversity geosciences in other areas so you are still seeing predominantly able-bodied white geoscientists particularly in those higher up positions both in lecturing and in industry in the UK. I did a google search actually because I wanted to to see what geoscience looked like in in school and when I did that, the top entries are all related to schools at university, not the schools that I was in, interested in. I was thinking, well, how does it, it appear in, in a, a secondary school? And I couldn't find anything. There's been a massive decline in yeah. geology provision in schools. The, the decline in geology is just amazing. And I thought that would be the key way in to 
geoscience. However, geography is quite a, a, a nicely balanced gender subject. Whereas when you look at something like physics, which might get you into geology at university, it really isn't. Yeah, it's, um, you know, some of those feeder subjects like chemistry, physics, biology, where people might go in on to study geology, they, they may be even less diverse than a subject like geography. And yeah, you're right. So A-level, when A-level geography was far more prevalent across the UK, that was a really strong feeder subject for people to then go on and do geology at university. And yeah, there's now been a massive decline. And part of that decline is because we no longer do AS levels. So there wasn't um, a lot of people were choosing geology as that fourth subject. And then they would end up loving it and then carrying it on. Um, so, yeah, um, Sean Davis, Volum and Dan Boatwright recently uh, wrote an article for the Geoscientist magazine and they looked at those trends through time. And a big part of that decline at undergraduate and A-level, uh, at undergraduate A-level, they put down to that AS level um, issue. And there's this issue of geology perhaps not being perceived as a science, um, not being seen in the same light as something like biology, chemistry, physics. Well, ironically, it cuts across all of those subjects. You know, there's bio, there's geobiology, there's geochemistry, there's geophysics. You know, there's any of those sub-sciences have applications that looking at the earth. You know, we've talked about this a lot in geoscience circles. There's been big debates over this, the future of geoscience over the last couple of years. You know, what can we do about these declining numbers at A-level? What can we do about these declining numbers at undergraduate? And to me, there's no clear solution. To me, it feels that there needs to be quite a significant public perception shift and a, and a policy shift with the government really understanding the importance of geoscience and geoscience education and making sure that we have UK trained geoscientists in this country. So if I'm talking to my A-level students now, then what do I tell them geoscience is? What exactly is it? Yeah, I would say that it's it's a way in to be part of tackling some really important global challenges. You know, it's more than just the study of rocks. It's more than, which is often what people say it is. It's so much more than that. It's unpicking the past. It's kind of being a detective and unpicking what's happened throughout Earth's history, unpicking how environments have changed, how climate's changed, how we've changed, you know, and, and then looking at what that means for the future and predicting the future. And it's going to be part of so many important subjects. It's going to be part of the energy transition, and it already is, and net zero. It's going to be part of understanding global change. And also it's more than just energy. You know, people often think of it as oil and gas and energy, but it's extraction for renewables. You know, it's mining in terms of gaining renewable resources. So, you know, solar power, solar panels and wind turbines aren't grown out of the ground. They need to be built with um, materials that are mined. And it's also resources, it's water. It's making sure that people have available groundwater and it's natural hazard management. You know, more and more as the climate crisis continues, we know that natural hazards, particularly climatic hazards, are increasing, but also that we'll be exposed to all kinds of hazards, more so than we were in the past. More people will be forced to live close to 
areas that are hazard prone as migration happens due to climate change. So, so yeah, it's a lot. It's resources, it's hazard management, it's renewable energy, it's the energy transition. It's a huge amount of topics all wrapped up under that geoscience umbrella. So how can we create a more sustainable and equitable geoscience for the future then, given what you just said? Yeah, so I think um, often geoscientists, we talk about how our subject is important and crucial for a more sustainable future for all the reasons that I've just explained. But to be able to do that, particularly in the UK, we need to make sure that our subject is sustainable and equitable because many of these global challenges that the world is facing involve people from many different disciplines working across countries, across communities, working in communities who were affected by these challenges in many, and the, all those people are gonna come from really different walks of life. At the moment, our discipline in the global North, particularly, so we know this is true of geoscience in America and geoscience in the UK, it's more difficult to say for Europe because they report their diversity data a little bit differently. But in the UK and the US, geoscience is very white. It's not racially diverse, it's not culturally diverse. And that gives us a problem in terms of equity. You know, there's a lot of published reasons as to why that is, a lot of kind of documented barriers to people from ethnically diverse backgrounds joining the geosciences. And if we can't get that right within our discipline, how can we go forward and work, you know, across different communities and build equitable partnerships to tackle some of these problems? And also, you know, we've already talked separately about the geoscience, the geoscience is declining in terms of numbers at A-level and undergraduate. And as a separate issue, we need to make sure our subject is sustainable in terms of its longevity. We need to make sure that it's still taught in multiple universities around the country. As numbers decline, the numbers of universities that offer the subject will decline. And what we don't want is that it ends up with geoscience is only being taught in a few very elitist institutions around the country because again that will make it even more exclusive a subject so I think we really need to be throwing open our doors making sure that our subject is as equitable as possible removing the structural barriers that are in place to people from diverse backgrounds and not just in terms of ethnicity but also in terms of ability in terms of gender making sure that we consider intersectional characteristics and how different people may feel barriers from multiple identities and making sure as well as that, that our subject is recognized for the importance that it has and that, that university management keep with it, you know, and they don't get rid of the subject, that they see its potential as being something that's really crucial in the UK's future economy. So that there is a problem, but, if we want to remove barriers and broaden participation, how do you reckon we can have the biggest impact? I think it's a really tricky question. I think that ultimately there are lots of things that could happen, particularly in terms of diversity. We need to think a lot about how inclusive our institutions are, how inclusive field trips are, how accessible fieldwork is, which is a you know, key part of ge geoscience. We can also think a lot about how accessible and inclusive our application procedures are, particularly when it gets up into moving into postgraduate research and into lectureship positions. We still have degree awarding gaps and that's not, that's not just for geoscience, you know, across the country. It's documented that, uh, for example, black students have a higher chance of getting 
a two-one compared to a white student who may have a higher chance of getting a first. If you see what I mean, so there are these kind of uh, gaps in awarding that that many have reported is due to bias um, rather than anything to do with merit. So there are some really significant issues, some of which are documented for the whole of academia, some of which are specific to the geosciences, which need to be tackled. On a bigger picture, for geoscience, I think there is a broader public perceptions and school-age children issue of allowing people to see that geoscience is a career for them, allowing them to see the wealth of careers that are available within the geosciences. Also ensuring that we tackle some of the problematic histories around geoscience. Geoscience was a tool of colonization and we need to face that as many institutions are now, they're facing their kind of imperial past, many institutions in the UK. And geoscience as a discipline needs to face that and needs to understand where geoscience knowledge has come from, who created that knowledge, who was discriminated during that knowledge creation, who benefited from that knowledge. Um, we need to see this all in a, in a kind of holistic way. We need to be showing school children that geoscience is a modern progressive discipline that is able to tackle these big picture challenges in an equitable way. And that isn't really a small feat that can be addressed with one thing, but equally that shouldn't be a reason to say, oh, it's too complicated, we can't do it, you know? So I think it's having more of these conversations and talking about these things more is a first step. It's getting people to acknowledge that these problems are actually problems. That's always the first issue getting institutions to acknowledge that bias is present, getting institutions to acknowledge that there are barriers that need to be removed. But yeah, also this kind of positive promotion of the subject is needed at really high levels, you know, from government and policy level um, and kind of education policy level for, and it isn't that geoscience necessarily needs to be its own A level, but if it isn't, it needs to be embedded really well within the other topics, within the other sciences, because it is a really crucial aspect of life. How do other scientists still view geoscience? Uh, so if you're, if you're a pure physicist and you're looking across at the department, how does that work? I think that, I mean, I can't speak for all departments, obviously, but I think it depends a lot on how departments are set up. Every university department is slightly different and structured in a different way. In some departments, there's very good collaboration between physicists and geologists, for example. But on the whole, I've seen geologists traditionally become quite siloed. You know, we tend to work in our own domains. And I think that there is a lot of potential for people to break out of those kind of traditional silos that we work in and to work with others. And I think that is happening more and more now. I think that, you know, there are more and more kind of biology, geology teams, you know, working on subsurface microbe problems, for example, or, you know, geoscientists working with marine scientists, you know, so I think there's that that collaboration has always been there, but I think that it needs to be more and I think it needs to be more widely talked about just because that is one of the best things about geoscience, it's interdisciplinary nature, the fact that it can cross these divides and 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 find these kind of connections between multiple subjects. You know, all of these subjects can be applied to the earth and 
those I think it's those connections that are probably most exciting to talk to young people about so I think for me that's something that we need to be shouting about a lot more those collaborative efforts between geology and other disciplines. I've heard that criticism about geography as well and I I know in America some uh, there are areas that don't teach geography because it's really lots of other subjects according to the way that they view their subject. How many geoscience departments are there at university? Would that work? Because you need to pull in the specialists to collaborate. I'm just wondering how we communicate that to students, to young people, when they don't start collaborating until they become specialists in their own field and then see the value of that collaboration, if that makes sense. Yeah, again, it's a really tricky question because obviously in our education system here in the UK, we choose a handful of topics very early on. Whereas, you know, unlike in Europe with the baccalaureate and, um, you know, in the US with their um, undergraduate degrees where you kind of have a number of different subjects and then only during your undergrad you start to major in a particular subject. So really we do in this country encourage students to choose quite early. And it does pose a question about how best to ensure students have that geoscientific understanding at a young age. And as I say, I don't really know exactly what the answer is to that challenge, but it is a challenge. And I think that it is something that will become more sharply into focus as we move forward with the energy transition. I think if our numbers continue to decline, then I think it will be something that will have to come onto the government's radar in a much stronger way, because we need to have these trained specialisms in the UK. We need to have people who can find resources to make uh, renewable energy. We need to have people who understand, you know, hydrogeology and how water moves through the landscape. And we need to have people who understand uh, landslide mitigation, uh, landslide hazards, for example. So we need, there's no doubt that we need geoscientists here in the UK and that we need a diverse range of, you know, homegrown geoscientists. It's just whether that need will be recognised and those changes will be made to allow that transformation to happen in the, rec- the current recruitment numbers. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking through with, with Equator, the, the Equator Research Group? So our Equator project is really focused on racial equity. So we've covered quite a few topics here today and we've talked about, you know, general recruitment onto geoscience degrees. We've talked about equity. We've talked about women and gender equity and we've talked about racial equity. And the Equator project is really focused on increasing the amount of black, Asian and minority ethnic students, particularly moving into postgraduate research in geoscience because it's one thing to have students at undergrad level, but it's another thing to ensure that we retain them all the way through so that you have lecturers who are diverse from diverse backgrounds, who then are role models to the next generation. Um, And there's actually a number of different projects were funded um, at the same time as Equator by the Natural um, Environment Research Council. And there's another project um, run by Bethany Fox at Huddersfield that's looking at diversity in geosciences into that undergraduate level. And really it needs looking at across the whole pipeline. Um, But our Equator project is particularly focusing on retaining students into postgraduate research. And those students, you know, once you've got a PhD in earth or environmental science or geographical science, 
you may not stay as a lecturer in academia, but you may go on to be a leader in industry, in geoscience industry. Um, you may go on to be a research scientist in industry. And again, those are roles that we need to see more diversity in. You've talked about that, I think, in, in one of the papers that you've written and aligning it more to the sustainable development goals, but also aligning it to industry and employment much more, which is really what you've been talking about as we've gone along. Yeah, and that's um, that's something that Jen Roberts at Strathclyde is working on at the moment, looking at how, because we have a number of postgraduate degrees in geoscience that are, that in the past were very traditionally aligned to the petroleum industry, and now are all kind of pivoting to become sustainable energy type master's uh, degrees, master's programmes. And um, Jen and a few others of us are looking into how those degrees are working. Are students actually working on more sustainable research? So is it just a name change or is it actually that these students are really genuinely becoming more equipped to research in uh, net zero topics and energy transition topics? Um, and that's the kind of auditing that we really need. We need to make sure that, that geoscience is really putting its money where its mouth is and that where we are um, making changes to become you know, sustainable geoscience degrees, that that is actually being borne out in the topics that students are being taught and in the research that students are doing. It, it's gone quite wide as well, hasn't it, in, in terms of, of the, the links that you're making with the sustainable development goals, which I talked about, and then other countries' visions. Because I was, I was looking at this, one of the presentations that you did was linking to Kenya Vision 2030. Yeah, so that was actually a project that was led by the University of Hull. And um, I'm a trustee for the charity Geology for Global Development. And that charity working with Hull and myself at Sheffield Hallam and with universities in Nairobi and Kenyatta in Kenya, um, put together a project where the focus was really on strengthening geoscience education for sustainable development. So it was looking at Kenya's policies um, that related to sustainable development and the sustainable development goals, and really analysing where geoscience was crucial in those policies, and then looking at the current geoscience kind of education landscape in Kenya, and seeing if that provision was sufficient to meet the demands of those policies. And it was a really interesting project and hopefully we'll be able to get some results out from it soon. But the idea is that then that work can be used on the ground in Kenya to discuss with policymakers the critical importance of geoscience education and to strengthen the education to ensure that within Kenya, those homegrown geoscientists are working in the right industries and are skilled in the right ways to tackle those problems. And we were looking at making, um, part of it was making fieldwork more accessible and inclusive, which is interesting to bring it back to us now, back in, in the UK again, about how we make our fieldwork as inclusive as we possibly can. Yeah, so actually that fieldwork project was a completely separate project. So the fieldwork inclusivity came from a completely different connection, which is um, from the Geoscience of the Future website. That's a website that I've been running since early 2020. And we've been reaching out to folks in the geoscience community to contribute articles. And we were really looking to hear from the most diverse uh, range of voices possible within geoscience. 
and a PhD student, Anya Lawrence, approached us and said, hey, I want to, you know, write this blog about how I think that geoscience could be more accessible from her own intersectional characteristics and identities. And um, me and Anya worked together on the blog. Um, and then eventually we then changed, kind of adapted it and broadened it, broadened the scope and made it into an article, Six Steps to, include, um, to Improve Inclusivity in the field. Um, and that's now published in AREA. Um, and really, that's been driven by Anya. She's an exceptional PhD student who is very keen to use her own quite negative experiences of fieldwork in a really positive way to ensure that fieldwork is more accessible for the next generation of geoscientists. So, yeah, a completely separate project, but another project that really speaks to this need for geoscience to modernise, to become more, pro more progressive and to be more accessible to a more diverse range of folks. I always find that hard when people say that they find they've had negative experiences with fieldwork, because we've just talked about you going to Santorini. What? And we've talked about you going to Mount Tadeo. How fantastic is that? I, I worry sometimes that because um, when, when I ran fieldwork, I always thought it was just fantastic. I couldn't I couldn't see what the negative was. So what did she feel was negative about fieldwork? Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't want to kind of speak directly for Anya, but I think, you know, in general, students have reported feeling very isolated in the field. There's, there's a whole range of reasoning for things as simple as availability of toilet stops can be really inaccessible for women who are on their period or for people who suffer with conditions like IBS, chronic conditions. There are things as straightforward as physical exertion. You know, people from um, a range of physical abilities, whether that be physically disabled or just with chronic pain type conditions, can struggle in the field. And, and then on top of that, there are other layers of um, barriers for those from low income backgrounds, often who are, um, particularly in the UK, who are more likely to be from ethnically diverse backgrounds in terms of the uh, cost of field equipment, you know, the cost of hiking boots, the cost of a decent waterproof coat. There's also cultural issues around residential field trips. So there's actually a whole host of barriers that I agree, like when I was an undergraduate, they weren't really spoken about, but my whole undergraduate cohort were white and able-bodied. And this is all part of the problem, you know, unless we make field work more accessible, we really are creating barriers to a whole range of students um, from different backgrounds and with different uh, challenges to overcome. And, you know, now in, in my own teaching, in my own field teaching, there's a great paper by Sarah Green at Birmingham and other collaborators, including um, Sam Giles, who's also done a lot of work on this area. And it's called a checklist for educators. And it's basically running through all the ways that um, field leaders can make field trips more inclusive. And a big part of it is just being as transparent as possible about what's going to happen in the field, about where you go, about where the toilet stops are, about the kind of walking there is, and also giving students the opportunity to tell you about any concerns, you know, being as transparent about field work as in advance as possible and encouraging students to come to you with concerns providing safe spaces for students to report any problems or any harassment they have in the field is also really important. So again, that's, I mean, that's something we could do a whole podcast on, but 
there's a huge amount that we can do. And some of it is actually relatively straightforward adaptations. But because these conversations just weren't happening in the past, these changes just weren't occurring. That would be really useful information, I think, for, for particularly for young teachers after two years of COVID, who some of them come into the profession and, and not run a field trip. And recently, um, Rebecca Williams of University Geoscience UK, kind of the body that represents heads of departments, of geology departments around the country, held um, a workshop that kind of brought together different people who worked on different issues in fieldwork accessibility. Jacqueline Houghton at Leeds has done a lot of work on physical disabilities in the field. And there are a lot of resources out there. Um, it's just really communicating it to people, making sure that people are aware of those resources. And they could benefit, you know, A-level teachers who do field work as well, A-level geography teachers. These are really um, kind of steps and um, considerations that can benefit teaching at all levels. Because a, a bad experience on a field trip will colour your whole view of the subject after that. So, of course, then you don't go on to take it. So I'm going to ask you one last big question then. What's the future, in your opinion? What's the future of geoscience? What do we need to do? What do we need to think about? I think it's hopeful. I think, you know, myself coming back into academia from industry, academia has changed since I did my PhD. I feel that people are more open. People talk to each other more. People are more willing to collaborate. I think things are changing, but there's still a long way to go. So I think I'm tentatively positive about the future. I think the industry is now starting to change. I think that ge the geoscience sector in general is recognising it needs to adapt. Mining has um, come a long way. You know, there's groups like um, Responsible Raw Materials who are really promoting more sustainable and ethical extraction. The energy sector is changing. There is far more talk around net zero than there was. But yeah, still a long way to go. And as we've said, still a lot of challenges around making sure that the public see geoscience for all the kind of exciting possibilities that it is, making sure that we're addressing the past in a positive way and not just sweeping it under the carpet. And yeah, engaging with people, both, you know, in between disciplines and at the same level, but also just engaging with young people, engaging with the public. But yeah, academics need a lot more time to do these things. Academics are pretty pressed. So I guess there's there's a lot to do and we need time and resources. So I don't have all the answers of how that will happen. But, but yeah, these recent funding pots by the National Environment Research Council for equity, diversity and inclusion projects, they're good. You know, we need more money to do projects like this, but they need to be bigger, more sustained, more joined up. But yeah, tentatively hopeful, I would say, for the future. Good. It's, I think it's difficult for teachers as well, because unless they're in, or in the know, then they're not party to that sort of information to tell their students. It is interesting that your teacher was able to point you in a direction towards doing geology and physical geography. Because yeah, and I think that that's, that's a really important point. Those links between university and secondary schools need to be stronger. You know, we need to have more engagement both ways so that we understand the A-level landscape more and that the, the A-level teachers feel confident in communicating about geoscience with their students. But yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what's needed to achieve that, but it's definitely something that needs to happen. 
that's right, the conversations that can be had between departments that are doing geoscience at university when students come to visit. And here are those sorts of possibilities. Have you considered these and see whether the students have or haven't? It, it's quite often a, a difficult thing when you're going through your A-levels, I think, to be then looking, as you said, to what my next steps are going to be. And it's easier to go with a safe route unless somebody's talking you through these are the possibilities and this is where geoscience will take you. I think it's it's hard. It's it's part of information, I think you're right. It's part of opening that up, that engagement and that dialogue. Hey, that was fascinating. Thank you very much, Natasha. I've had a, <laughs> I've really enjoyed listening to you today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's been great to be a part of the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. 